This information is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information with regard to the subject matter covered. It is offered with the understanding that the presenters are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert advice is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought. Welcome to the Real Estate Financial Planner Podcast. I'm your host, James Orr, and this is Episode 1. Today, we're going to meet Andrea, a 40-year-old, recently divorced, single mom of two young boys, ages 2 and 4. Andrea graduated from Arizona State University with a degree in accounting. After a few poor fits, she finally settled into a good job working in accounting for a small manufacturing company. She earns about $4,000 per month, about $48,000 per year. In the divorce, she received about $100,000 from the sale of the family home and her share of the savings and retirement funds. All of the $100,000 is after taxes and stored in a regular investment account. It is not in an IRA, 401k, or other special retirement account. Her divorce agreement has her receiving no alimony and no child support. She has long since paid off her student loans. She does use a credit card as a convenience, but pays the balance in full each month. She owns her car outright, and she has no other debt. We've assumed that her $4,000 per month in income from her accounting job continues to keep pace with inflation. She will continue to get regular raises, but her raises are not increasing her standard of living. Her primary concern moving forward is providing a good life for her two boys. Her secondary concern is to invest $100,000 wisely for her retirement. Ideally, she would like to spend all of her income from her accounting job on supporting herself and her kids. However, when her kids are adults in about 16 years, she could, at least in theory, take some of the money she was spending on them and use it to catch up with any retirement savings. However, 16 years from now, she'll be 56 years old and only have about nine years left until she is 65 years old. That's not a lot of time for her to be able to make up a lot of lost ground. Ideally, she can grow the $100,000 she has now to provide enough for her retirement. She's been exposed to the idea of investing in rental properties, but has no experience doing it. She's hesitantly optimistic about the idea of investing in rentals. She still needs to learn more about it to feel comfortable. She doesn't know what she doesn't know yet. She hopes real estate will help her grow her $100,000 to be enough to retire by at least age 65. Age 65 is 25 years from now. She'd love to be able to stop working earlier than age 65. Meanwhile, she doesn't hate her job. It's okay. She does like the people she works with. After speaking with some of her family and friends, they've suggested, and she agrees, that maybe she should give herself a little time and space before she does anything drastic with the $100,000 she has saved. Typical bread-and-butter rental properties in her city cost about $250,000. When buying rental properties, she figures she could put 20% down and get non-owner-occupant investor loans. A 20% down payment on a $250,000 property would be about $50,000. If she was not going to pause to give her some space to settle after divorce, she could, in theory, afford two rental properties. That's two $50,000 down payments. She is temporarily ignoring closing costs. She does need a place to live with her two boys. A friend of hers is a real estate agent in her local market. Her friend refers her to a mortgage broker, and they discuss buying a home for her and her two boys to live in. After looking at all the financing options with the lender, she decides to get a 5% down owner-occupant loan. 
By not putting 20% down, the lender would require her to pay for private mortgage insurance, also known as PMI. PMI protects the lender in case Andrea defaults. Andrea believes that the benefit of only having to come up with 5% down payment and closing costs and keeping more of her $100,000 outweighs the extra $158 per month that she'd need to pay in private mortgage insurance. PMI stops when her loan-to-value reaches 80%. She estimates she need to pay the PMI for a little more than four years or about $8,000 total. She thinks to herself, I could put 5% down, about $12,500 on a $250,000 property, and pay $8,000 over four years in PMI. That would total approximately $20,500. Alternatively, I could put 20% down, about $50,000, and have an extra $158 per month for the next four years. Andrea believes it is better to keep more of the $100,000 to keep saving for retirement by choosing the smaller down payment. We can almost look at the $158 per month in PMI as money she is saving for retirement because she did not need to dip more into the $100,000 for retirement. While talking to the lender, the lender mentions to her something important. She is required to live in the property for a year to qualify for the 5% owner-occupant down payment amount and the owner-occupant interest rate. The owner-occupant interest rate, even with 5% down, is significantly better than the non-owner-occupant interest rate she would get with 20% down. She is quoted 3.125% for owner-occupant with 5% down payment and 4.5% for 20% down non-owner-occupant. Now, an important side note, mortgage interest rates change throughout the day. The spread between owner-occupant rates and non-owner-occupant rates can also change over time. This was a real difference at the time I created these scenarios, but when you call your lender to get rates, they will undoubtedly be different. Continuing on with our story. So Andrea asked the lender if, a year from now, after she fulfilled her obligation to the lender to occupy the property for a full year, if she wanted to buy another property with 5% down, could she keep this property and convert it to a rental? The lender informs her that she need to qualify for a new property purchase, but she could also use the rent from the property to help her qualify. Our modeling starts with Andrea buying the home for her and her boys to live in with 5% down, PMI, and some closing costs. She keeps the remaining money from the $100,000 that she had saved and invests in stock market index funds. For the sake of simplicity in our modeling, we assume she is earning 8% per year in the stock market. Another note, for our basic modeling, we assume fixed rates of return. For example, we assume a fixed 8% return on the money she stores in the stock market account. We also use fixed rate assumptions for property price appreciation, rent appreciation, and the inflation rate. Now, obviously, in the real world, these are variable. We make them and other factors variable in the advanced modeling we do in the Real Estate Financial Planner Advanced Podcast. Now, back to our story. During the first year living in the property, Andrea focuses on spending time with her boys, spending essentially all her money from her $4,000 per month gross income on living expenses. In her spare time, she does begin to study real estate investing and is willing to try at least one rental property. Year two. About two months prior to her one-year anniversary living in her home with her kids, 
she starts the process of looking for a new home to move into. She plans to buy a new home and keep the old one as a rental property. While Andrea is certainly starting to learn about investing in real estate during that first year, she is, by no stretch of the imagination, an expert. But she decides to act in spite of her fear. Property values during that first year have gone up a little, so the property she bought last year is worth a little more. The property she is about to buy is also about the same price. Both were about $250,000 last year. This year, they're both worth a little more than $255,000. So she puts 5% down and gets an owner-occupant loan. It is annoying and requires some effort, but she moves out of the property she bought last year and moves into the new property. Now, here's a question for you. Is it worth it? for Andrea to buy properties as an owner-occupant and go through the hassle of moving each year. We call this the nomad real estate investing strategy, and we have done numerous comparisons showing the difference between doing this strategy versus just about every other strategy, including putting 15%, 20%, or 25% down and not moving in. The short answer is yes, it is annoying and a lot of extra work, but there are significant financial benefits. Because she put less than 20% down on this property, she will have PMI on this new purchase as well, and she'll still be paying PMI on the previous property, but she is collecting rent on the previous property, and even with the PMI and vacancy, property taxes, insurance, maintenance, and her mortgage payment, she is making about $40 per month in positive cash flow on that property. An important note, she is going to be managing the property herself, so she is not taking into account a professional property manager. We will look at the benefits and the financial impact of Andrea hiring a professional property manager in episode four, Andrea hires a professional property manager. She is not taking into account the tax benefits of depreciation now that it is a rental property. So in month 13 from now, Andrea now owns two properties. One is a rental property that she bought as an owner-occupant and lived in for the previous year. It is now rented to a tenant for about $1,650 per month. The other is a new property, very similar to what she was previously living in, that she bought for 5% down and is now living in with her two boys, ages 3 and 5. She continues to work at her job as an accountant at the manufacturing company. She spends her entire paycheck supporting herself and her kids. This includes the mortgage payment on the property they're living in. After taking out the money for her 5% down payment and closing costs to buy the new property, the money she has left over from the initial $100,000 is still invested in the stock market at 8% a year. In fact, it had grown some since last year. After the second down payment, it has about $73,000 left invested in stocks. If she had tried to put 20% down, she probably wouldn't have had money left over after buying two properties. By purchasing properties sequentially as an owner-occupant with 5% down, she still has about $73,000 left over. Year three. She continues to study real estate investing in year two, but she also has a rental property and she is learning through experience now with her rental. About two months prior to her one-year anniversary on her second property, she starts the process to buy the next property, her third. Both the properties she owns, the one she is living in and the rental, have gone up in value a little bit. 
she is buying the same type of property for her third property, so that one costs the same as the previous two are now worth, about $261,000 each. She dips into her stock market investment account for another 5% down payment and some closing costs and buys her third property again as an owner-occupant. While annoying, she moves out of the second property with her two boys, now aged four and six. She converts the second property to a rental and leases it to a good tenant. She now has two rental properties and a home she lives in. She bought all three of them with 5% down payments. All three of them still have private mortgage insurance. The first one she bought is currently cash flowing about $78 per month, and the second one is cash flowing about $55 per month. This is after all expenses, including vacancy, taxes, insurance, maintenance, mortgage payments, and PMI. Since she is managing it herself, she is not paying a professional property management fee. She is still just living on the income from her accounting job while the rentals and the money she has in the stock market is contributing toward her retirement funds. So when will she have enough to stop working the accounting job and live off of her investments? How would she determine if she has enough to retire? Well, she could use the cash flow the rental properties are generating. If the rents on the property she owns, after all the expenses on them that we previously discussed, if that cash flow is enough to exceed the amount of money she is generating from her job as an accountant, adjusted for inflation, then she is financially independent and could stop working and live off the cash flow from the rentals. But she also has money invested in the stock market. If she had no rental properties, how would she know if she had enough money invested in stocks or bonds or something else to be able to retire? She does some research and reads about this idea of the 4% rule. Now, there's some details to it, but the oversimplified explanation is she can, in quotes, safely spend 4% of the lump sum she has invested in stocks and bonds, adjusting for inflation each year. If she does that, she is not likely to run out of money over a 30-year retirement period. So now we have guidelines for rental property, the cash flow, and stocks or bonds, the 4% rule. When does the combination of the cash flow on her rentals and 4% of her stocks replace the $4,000 per month she is currently living on from her accounting job? And technically, it is $4,000 per month adjusted for inflation. That means it is really higher than $4,000 a month, but the real estate financial planner software does that math for us. So she's gonna continue to buy properties. She keeps moving into a new property each year and converts the previous to a rental until she has purchased nine properties. At that point, she has eight rentals when she really only had down payments for two rentals originally. And the ninth property is the one she will live in forever. That takes over eight years to acquire these nine properties. It turns out she is able to achieve financial independence and stop working about 141 months into the process. That's about 11.75 years. Her kids are 13 and 15 by then, and she'll be completely free to spend their teenage years with them without having to work at her accounting job. She stops working at her accounting job at month 141 and lives off the proceeds from a combination of the cash flow from her eight rental properties and the money she is earning from her investments in the stock market. 
the majority of the money she needs to live on comes from rental property cash flow. She is earning almost $5,600 per month. If we adjust for inflation, it is just over $4,000 per month in today's dollars, which is the amount she is trying to replace from her accounting job. In fact, in retirement, as rents increase and properties get paid off, she will be able to spend a lot more than the $4,000 per month she'd been earning. So how much cash flow does she have in month X? You know, what is her debt to income level after she bought house number six or house number eight? Can she qualify for all these loans? The answer is yes. How much does she have in stocks when she reaches financial independence? How much equity does she have? What was the largest amount of negative cash flow she had at any given time? How low did her account balance get? Get unprecedented insight and answers to all these questions by going to the URL in the show notes. Or if you're like Andrea, except you make more or less, you have more or less to start, the properties near market cost more or less, rents are more or less, you can copy Andrea's scenario to your real estate financial planner account and change any of the assumptions to see the new results for your situation. Now, if you're like me, you probably have questions. You know, what if her experience meant that she has slightly under-renting the properties? Or what if she worked really hard and was able to get $100 more per month in rent each month? What difference would that make? Could she retire earlier? And how much earlier? Find out in episode two, where Andrea gets $100 more per month in rent. Does this real estate stuff make that big of a difference? What if she just kept her money invested in stocks instead? When could she retire then? Find out in episode three, when Andrea invests in stocks instead of nomading. What if she hired a professional property manager? Would that slow down her ability to retire? By how much? Find out in episode four, where Andrea hires a professional property manager. What if she took her extra cash flow and decided to use it to start paying off properties early? Can she retire early? Is this less risky? Is this more risky? Find out in episode five, where Andrea pays off properties early with cash flow. And even some more advanced questions like, what if the stock market goes down or has random returns like the historical returns themselves instead of using a fixed 8% all the time? What if rents go down or if they're random? What if property values go down or they're random? What if mortgage interest rates go up or they're random? What if we see more or less inflation or inflation is random? The Real Estate Financial Planner Advanced Podcast answers the questions about variable rates of return, variable rent appreciation rates, variable property appreciation rates, variable mortgage interest rates, and variable inflation rates. This has been James Orr with the Real Estate Financial Planner Podcast. Be sure to catch the next episode with Andrea to find out more of her journey. Oh, I almost forgot. You can download the newest version of the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet for free. Just go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash spreadsheet to download it right now. It's amazing. Bye-bye for now.